Welcome to another week on Let's Get Real with Coach Menachem Show, Sunday Nights. Originally a Zoom interactive platform where we discuss real life scenarios with real live people. Okay, amazing. Hold on one second. Okay. Hi, everybody. Welcome to tonight's program. Tonight's going to be an amazing and very special program. Happy you joined us here. Uh, tonight is sheer number 76 from the Let's Get Real Coach Menachem Bernfeld program. And I always start off every week, first of all, thanking for everybody for promoting it. Again, the program is really growing. It's exploding from all our viewers that posted on their WhatsApp statuses and they tell people about it, the email around. Just today, I personally got a bunch of texts to sign up. Sign up, they text me my phone number, 848-525-0066. And they get added to the WhatsApp and the chats. It's amazing. Our guest, Lou, Lou Abrams, was here. He said he got bombarded from all over the place. And Nate, you know, they're coming on. So Baruch Hashem, and I explained them all. This is all from people talking and from people. It's made by, it's made by the people, for the people. So we're really appreciative and we appreciate that. And please, again, not every share might not be getting the gear for every single person, but let people know about it because you never know what people are dealing with. It's tremendous chizik. For those who are watching the, the recap of this on YouTube, please click on the like button and also click on the Coach Menachem subscribe button so every week you can get the, the videos as they get uploaded. I want to start off first with all our advertising sponsors that promote us on all the advertising platforms. Um, I want to thank first Lakewood Scoop over here on Lakewood for promoting us every week strongly. We really appreciate it. And uh, I want to give a special thank you to Rabbi and Nifim Chazak for promoting us on their platforms. A special thank you to Chayla Kaufman and Shmuel Summer from the JCN Network for always promoting us on all the digital Jewish platforms. We really appreciate it. Again, for anybody who's here for the first time, every Sunday night we do this. This is number 76, so it's been a while. I got a little wider since we started. So, uh, you know, we're doing this for a while. We've been around, and we really appreciate uh, everybody doing it. It's every Sunday night, 10 o'clock. It's the same Zoom ID, and we bring on Rabbanim, therapists, amazing people, everybody that comes on. It's been one after another unbelievable so uh i'm very very confident that tonight's going to be a, a memorable night next week sunday we have the world famous this guy is off the charts i was actually in his neighborhood his chasidim were going wild that they were that he's coming on or yossi zakatinsky he's from lawrence he's like the big big upcoming rabbi in five towns this guy is as they say neil chassid next level i can't explain it because it's hard to really describe it but next week just put just put your boots on uh, he's going to be discussing who are we what are we doing here and the need and the relevance of deeper sides of Torah in our lives. So I'm telling you, join. It's negated to everybody. It's going to be a powerful and meaningful program. Please let everybody know about it. And tonight we have the schuss of having two of the biggest therapists in this industry. We have Lou Abrams, who anybody who's dealt in, you know, addictions or anything, his name is like, you know, they try to get a five-minute consultation with him just to, you know, get some madracha. And uh, I'm sorry, I have to say the truth. I'm, I'm, I'm obligated by my, uh, by my boss of the program. To say the honesty, I'm sorry. I know you're a very anivistic person, but it is what it is. And Nate, who I happen to know for a long time, who deals with uh, deals with tremendous amount of families, he works for cross, cross, Crossroads, and um, they really they, they have their hand in the industry. So tonight's gonna be a powerful program. We're gonna start off first with an opening from our host, Coach Menachem Berenfeld, who's here with Mr. Snefish, to open it up for the island. Welcome everyone, Baruch Hashem. Up to share uh, share episode number 76, with a lot of Siata Deshmaya. Tonight's 
tonight's program, addiction and compulsive behavior, the truth is we got many emails and the program is called Let's Get Real. And this is something that if you want to get real, there are topics that a lot of people don't want to talk about. And the truth is there are many people that are not aware of these things. And for those, they think, you know, why talk about it? We don't know anything about it and finished. Let's close our eyes. And then you have other ones that struggle. They see it and they're not sure where to turn their eyes, not sure where to turn and get the right, um, uh, the right direction. And then there are those who are in, we'll call it rehab or those who got helped. And something very important to know when we talk about these things that no matter where anybody is, there is hope. And that's why tonight we have with us um, experience, a lot of experience from Lewis Abrams and, and Nate that he uh, works in the rehab. And especially, I think he specializes with the Jewish families. For those who have questions, tonight is the time. I do wanna mention that I personally heard from many that when they got to, when they got, became aware of the 12 steps program, how it, how it changed their lives, not only those who struggle, it's, it's, for, it's for, um, for the families, for those who, many emails came in, parents, siblings, what should they do? Many times there's nothing they could do and they do have to learn not to become the enabler and uh, usually they should seek out to go to groups. And uh, it used to be that we, you didn't know where to go and it's quiet, nobody wants to talk about it. I think today it's getting a little bit, it's coming out a little bit more and especially tonight. We, we're not gonna be able to cover everything, but we hope to put on the table many, many topics so that when people are in it, people have questions so that they know where to go with that direction. So thank you very much. Louis Abrams and Nate Negoblat to be with us tonight. And we'll be in Mitzvah with this, with a little bit of chizik and some information. Everybody will be able to get what they need in Mitzvah Shem. Shkoyach. Beautiful opening. First of all, I just want to start off uh, mentioning that uh, obviously everybody knows I'm involved with Kesha Nafshi, that uh, families for children that are struggling, teenagers. Um, they're, they're, I just wanted to mention that they, they have, uh, they're going at the end of October, the last week of October, they're going to Meshbish. It's going to be an amazing trip. I don't know if people know about it. They don't know about it. Um, I'm not able to go this time, but I'm going to be Meshbish in January. They're having the, the, bi, the bi-annual uh, Shabbaton, but a lot of people are going to Meshbish to Davin, and it's going to be an unbelievable uh, event. A lot of tremendous therapists are going to be there and Rabbonim. Anybody who has any struggling teens should definitely go. If you could go, um, contact keshernafshi.org. It's a website. You can go there. And uh, find out about it. it's really it's not expensive. It's you know a lot of it's being comped by people. So definitely go there and check it out. I think it'll be tremendous helpful for you. Tonight we're going to do the share. We're going to learn the Il Nishmas, Louis Abraham's. He'll explain the connection. We're going to do it with Rabbi Twersky. It's going to be in, for his neshama. Rabbi Vermeshua Herschel Ben Yaakov Yisrael. And uh, we'll get into that again tonight. Topic we're talking about addiction and compulsive behaviors. It's a very broad topic and we're going to try to go through a lot of things we could really spend probably weeks on this because it goes from all spectrums from phone to internet to to you know drinking so we'll keep that in mind and um we're going to try to cover as much as possible again tonight everything is very general we're not trying to answer very deep we got some emails that were very very detailed a few you know a few pages long 
So if somebody has a situation, please ask. Please be interactive. They're here to help. But we're, again, we're trying to be more general and really explain the topics to help the, the, the broader people. If anybody needs any more help, obviously you can reach out to Nate, to Lewis. You can reach out, send the email. We'll, we'll follow up with that afterwards. Okay. Let's start our first opening with Nate. I'll read his bio and then you'll open up, okay? Nate is a, Nate Nagelblatt. He's a licensed clinical social worker. He's, he is the clinical outreach manager for recovery at the Crossroads, has a private practice also in Lakewood, New Jersey. Nate primarily works with individuals struggling with addiction with a specific focus on working with the extended family. He also specializes in the crisis intervention, anxiety, depression, and suicide. He's currently pursuing his doctorate degree at Yeshiva University. Harava Goyen, Reb Nate, please open it up. Thank you, Usher. I appreciate it. Um, before we really get started, I just want to tell you something that I, I probably mentioned to you before. Um, I can't tell you how much I appreciate what you guys are doing here. We get so many questions about this topic. It's sort of like Coach Menachem just said, it's, it's the underlying topic that nobody talks about really, but it's really, really prevalent. And for people to have a platform where you can have 386 people showing up on a Sunday night to ask questions and to get feedback. Even like, it's a privilege for me to be here with someone like Lou Abrams. Um, I can't tell you how many cases I've worked with where they've been like, yeah, you know, I, I've been to Lou, I've gotten an evaluation from him. Um, so I really appreciate just having this opportunity to talk about this topic. Um, a little bit about myself. So like Usher said, I am the uh, clinical outreach manager for recovery at the crossroads. So I deal with a lot of families in the firm community who are looking for treatment. Sometimes I'll deal with the addict, sometimes I'll deal with the family. And there are families that I'll deal with for weeks, for months, sometimes more than that, until the child is actually ready to get the help that they need or the spouse. Um, this is obviously a very large topic. So like Usher said, I'd love to hear questions, individual questions, personal questions, anything that people wanna know about this field. One thing that I would just like to share, if I may Usher, just by way of introduction. Um, so this might, uh, some people might already know this, but. It was just interesting to me. One of the first clients that I ever worked with was a middle-aged male who struggled severely with alcoholism. <clears throat> he was a blackout drunk, uh, ended up getting divorced, lost custody of his children. His life was really spiraling out of control. And I remember, you know, I, I sort of asked him, you know, on a scale of one to 10, what's the, what's the biggest problem in your life? And I thought that's like a, you know, it's a fastball down the middle, right? He's for sure going to say alcohol. And he looked me in the eye and he said, Nate, my biggest problem in life right now is anxiety. I don't know how to cope with my anxiety. And I think whatever conversation we're going to have tonight, I think that needs to sort of be part of the foundation. What are the underlying, what are the underlying reasons beneath the addiction, right? What are the precipitating events behind the addiction? And if we really sort of conceptualize it like that, addicts aren't that different from everybody else. They're just from fun, trying to find a way to cope. Everyone in this world is trying to find a way to get by. They've found something that's incredibly unhealthy, that's maladaptive, but everyone is trying to find a way to cope. And how many of us who might not be addicts, but still we find things that are not adaptive that end up harming other people or harming ourselves. So, you know, I, I think just conceptually, addiction doesn't mean, need to be an extreme case, but this idea of sort of human beings struggling with finding ways to cope with the things that, that they're struggling with, whether it's depression, trauma, anxiety, and what do we do when we're, when we're sort of struggling with that? So that's just by way of introduction. Um, but again, it's a, an absolute honor for me to be here. I appreciate it. And I'm looking forward. Beautiful night. Thank you for such a beautiful, Thanks. smooth opening. Thank you. Don't worry, we'll get deep tonight. Don't worry, we're just, we're just starting off light. 
Okay, let me introduce Lou Abrams. For the past 41 years, Lou Abrams has been treating those, those uh, afflicted with addictions, with mental health challenges, including adolescents, adults, couples, and families. He's created and directed programs at all levels of care, including traditional outpatient, partial hospitalization, intensive outpatient, and residential services throughout New York and New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Lou has written numerous articles regarding substance abuse and mental health topics, including Judaism and substance abuse treatment, recovery and renewed spirituality. In 2014, Lou received a certification in sex addiction treatment, CSAT. He's a graduate from Columbia University School, Social School 1980, and currently has a full-time practice servicing individuals, adults and adolescents, couples and families. His office is located in Montville, New Jersey. And Lou, before you can go to the opening, please tell us about Rabbi A.J. Twersky. Okay, thank you. It's a, it's a tremendous host to be here tonight. Uh, if, if it was only about meeting Nate Nagelblatt, it would have been fine because we spent, uh, I don't know, the better part of an hour a couple of days ago, uh, Arab Shabbos talking about the program and planning. And I was just so uh, happy to be with a colleague who knows so much about addiction and, and the intricacies of addiction and families and systems. And I need to say that publicly, Nate, it was really a pleasure to, to kick things off. Thank you. Rabbi, and he goes by, he went by, uh, Rabbi Avram Tversky went by Rabbi Doctor in that order, that, which to me was always very significant. When he introduced himself, when he was introduced, he was always Rabbi Doctor. Um, so it, it tells you just in terms of the world and priorities of an individual, that's, that was what was first to him, being a rabbi and then being a doctor. And I had the good fortune and, and you know, seemingly coincidental good fortune, although I don't know that there are coincidences in this world, uh, to meet him back in 1992 in Northeast Pennsylvania in Scranton. I was running a rehab up there, a secular rehab. Uh, I've split my time over the last 40 plus years, half of the time in the beginning, the first 20 years in the secular world, working with Jews and non-Jews alike in a various uh, variety of places and lo locations and levels of care. And then I was asked uh, in, in 2002 to come and run a rehab called the Yatskin Center, which unfortunately does not exist any longer, but was around for about seven years uh, in, in New York, in the New York area. And it was a from rehab for adolescents who came from all over the world. And so that was another chapter of my life. But I met Rabbi Tversky, seemingly coincidentally, as he gave a spirituality lecture that was very, very involved with chemical dependency. And he, he talked for a full day at a college in uh, outside of Scranton, a place called Marywood College, a Catholic university, and there were all sorts of professionals there. And I remember uh, at the end of the program, I was going back to, to Stroudsburg, and he was being driven back to Brooklyn, where his children live. Uh, he has a son who's a close colleague, Ben Sionsworski. And he was going back to stay with them. And I had the chutzpah, really, to ask him, was there any way that I could take you half the way? That you could, even if you say nothing to me, if you sit in my car and we could just pass the time being next to each other. And he said, absolutely. You just have to okay it and coordinate it with my driver. And I went right to his driver and his driver said, it's fine. I have to follow you. Obviously we'll do a handoff in Strasbourg. And so for the next hour from about five o'clock to six o'clock, Rabbi Tversky sat in my car and it was just 
unforgettable. And it was, it's a long time ago, but I remember it like it was yesterday. Years later, when I ran the Atkins Center, he was a major, major mentor and, and uh, did so much to help our program. Um, tonight is, is a night that probably could, and it's been said, it could be a course. It could be a course that could go over um, nights and nights and nights of, of talking and sharing ideas and questions. Um, there are a couple of major areas that I would hope at the end of the evening, people that came here would take away. And one of them is really gleaning the myths and the misconceptions about chemical dependency and about addictions in general. Um, when we talk about addictions, we talk about two major categories. One are substances, one are actual um, uh, substances that we put into our bodies, that people put into their bodies like drugs, like alcohol. Very interesting when we talk about food because that's certainly something we put into our bodies. And then there's a whole other category that has gained tremendous notoriety in the last many years, and that's called process addictions. Things that people do, behaviors, actions, Gambling is, a, is an addiction. The brain chemistry of a gambler who's a, a, a serious problematic gambler is very similar to the brain chemistry of somebody who's on cocaine when they're both actively involved in their addictions. And yet gamblers don't put anything into their body. They do things, they, they take chances, they take risks. And that is what creates the dopamine changes in terms of arousal, and finally, in terms of really, really uh, getting off, so to speak, and changing their mood and changing their biochemistry, and particularly their brain chemistry. So process addictions and substance addictions. I also feel that, and, and it's been said already in, the, in this introduction, um, the component of people surrounding the identified patient known as the alcoholic, for example, or the problem compulsive sex addict or the gambler who has a problem, the people around and the, the, the ironic piece is that the closer the people are to the identified patient in social work school, many years ago, I was introduced to the term identified patient. That's the, the person with the quote unquote problem. That's the person that we're trying to fix. And I thank God I started to understand years later that that person is generally not in himself. He, he is not by himself. He's surrounded by other people until the very later stages. And later on tonight, we'll get into discussion about the stages of addiction. He's surrounded by other people. In the beginning of the, of the addiction, in the first stages, the elementary stages, you can't tell him from the person that doesn't have a problem. He looks very similar or she looks very similar to people that have no problem whatsoever. And as the, the problem progresses, loss continues and loss is incurred and consequences happen. We'll talk about all of that, but the people surrounding really, really play a major role, not in creating the problem and not necessarily in fixing it directly, but the more they understand what's going on and what the repercussions and the ramifications of their behaviors are, the more they stand the chance to help not only the person with the problem, but themselves, primarily to help themselves. Anybody who is involved in being with an alcoholic, for example, is probably suffering himself or herself as well. And the more you love that person, the more you suffer until you start to really understand what this disease is about, the fact that it is a disease. We'll talk about that as well. It's a very, very important point that has 
a lot of different myths and misconceptions related to it, that concept of disease or illness. And so those are, those are just some, those are a handful of very, very important topics tonight that we're going to cover. And we're not going to complete them. We're going to, for many people in the audience, we're going to raise them and really initiate thought and discussion and hopefully let you know where you can go to continue this process uh, because they're just paramount. There has been real, real progress. I have to say, not only in the world at large and the, in the, community at large, but in the Jewish community and, and in the from community, in the religious Jewish community, there's been tremendous, tremendous progress, but there's so much more work to be done. And so I, I am very, very blessed to have had people like Rabbi Dr. Avram Tversky that, that taught me so much and, and some other people uh, along the way. And I'm just here to really pass it on and to give it over to, to other people. And I, I really appreciate Usher Parnas and I appreciate um, the coach, uh, Menachem, and I'm looking forward to the, uh, the, the rest of this evening. It's very exciting to be here. Thanks. It's a beautiful opening. Okay, let's give you a one minute break. We'll get the crowd warmed up. Um, again, anybody who's here tonight, I'm lucky to have amazing therapists here that really deal with this hands-on. They're familiar with everything. I know sometimes you think, you know, you have to, you have the opportunity. You could ask the question, text me, Usher Barnes over here on the chat. Obviously the live questions go first. Um, and uh, we're gonna try to cover a lot tonight, whatever we could cover. Let's take first the poll question. Let's get the crowd warmed up. We have three questions to ask you now, and then we have a surprise um challenge if you're up to it but let's start with the polls okay hold on one second okay can everybody can you see the polls nate yep <clears throat> let me just start again relaunch it hold on okay here we go when do you notice that you escape escape the most talking about a regular person when do you notice that you just tune out the most is it a when i'm around my spouse and my children is it b when i'm at work or is it c when it's quiet and i'm bored when do you just tune out and escape right this is all anonymous we don't know what it is we're just going to send all this information straight to the police. What do, who do you think, second question, who do you think addiction issues are harder on? Three choices. Somebody who's an addict, right? Who's it harder on? Is it harder on the, the hardest on the spouse, hardest on the kids, or hardest on the addict himself? And the third question, if you move down, this is a very, very smart question that Nate came up with. And it's really going to be eye-opening because it's a very deep question. I want you to listen to the question. When you indulge in something, about a regular person, I like chocolate chip cookies. When you indulge in something compulsively, that means I eat a whole bag of it. What do you feel afterwards? Do I feel A, guilt, B, shame, C, out of control, or D, I feel good about myself. You're taking good care of yourself. I love chocolate chip cookies. So those are the three questions. Answer them. And we're going to get, Louis, after everybody answers, we'll share the results with everybody. And then you guys could chime in and then we'll get into the questions, okay? Good. Give you guys five seconds. Five, four, three, two, one. Okay, come on, come on. Think about it, way too much, way too much. Wow, I can't believe he answered that, I'm shocked. Okay, here we go. What, when do you notice that you escape the most? 20% of the people say when I'm around my spouse and my children, 9% of the people say when I'm at work, 70% of the people say when I'm, when it's quiet and bored, they can't be in the moment. They got to escape. Internet texting, WhatsApp. Okay. Second question. Who do you think addiction issues are harder on? 50% of people said the spouse. A lot of spouses. <laughs> I guess all the spouses are watching. 
14% said the children, and 36% said the addict himself. Oh, thank you for correcting on the spelling. Okay. And the last question is, when you indulge in something compulsively, what do you feel afterwards? 26% of the people say guilt. 28% of the people say shame. 42% the winning answer is out of control. Only 4% of the people feel good about yourself, that you're taking care of yourself when you indulge in anything. Nate, Lewis, jump on the polls. What's your opinion? Just talk about it and then let's get to the questions. I can jump in on uh, the, the questions are very, very provocative and they really, they really serve uh, an educational dimension to what we're doing here tonight. I'm gonna jump on the second question because I think that who does this affect uh, is really, really a, a, a very important piece of what we have to offer tonight. And I have to say that um, the, the, the answer is they affect everybody. And sometimes they affect one category more than the others. But the, the, the myth is that they affect the addict and not other people. And because the addict is the drinker or the addict is the drug addict or the addict is the, ga the, addict is the gambler, um, so the, the, the audience right off the bat has some, some real uh, smarts. They're ahead of the game when they say the spouse is 50% uh, harder, hard affected in a more intense kind of way. Um, studies have shown over and over again that the consequences that are affected by family members uh, and how their, their emotional state, how they start to uh, have effect on their work, their social relations, profound and and this is why we call this illness a systems illness it is not something that just affects the identified patient nate do you want to jump in yeah. before we go to questions yeah no i'm i'm, I'm with that 100 percent. i was just thinking when we did the questions we did the spouse we did the kid we did the addict but we didn't do the parent um and and i, and I think that's incredibly important um you know i i've worked with a parent who gave me who called me once and um they told me that they live in the house with their son, their son's an, an active user. And when they call their son's name and they don't answer, their blood pressure goes up because they think that their son overdosed. And this is a family who's had to Narcan their child a couple of times. And for those of you who don't know, Narcan is an antagonist that forcibly removes the opioid from the opioid receptors in the brain. It, it, it reverses the effect of an overdose. Um, for parents to live in an environment where at any moment they're not sure whether the children are here or not, the sh that alone, just that stress alone can be incredibly impactful. And sort of what I think Lou is really gonna address tonight, the family piece, right? Can the family get the support that they deserve, which is incredibly important. Um, and just one other piece, the last part, the guilt and the shame. Um, I thought that was really interesting that when people indulge, they do feel guilt and shame, which is actually pretty similar to what addicts feel when they relapse. And that guilt and shame causes another relapse, right? It sort of feeds into the self-loathing behavior, which causes another relapse. I, I don't know if we can do another question here, but I'm curious if anybody here has ever felt so guilty that they stopped eating chocolate chip cookies, right? That, that usually doesn't work. But I think it's interesting how, again, to what we said in the beginning, the feelings and the cycles that an active addict goes through is really not that different what, from what a regular, a non-addict would go through. And I think it helps us sort of relate to what they may or may not be feeling. But yeah, that's what I thought. Okay, let's get into it. Sani, Sani Perlman, I love you. I'm just letting you know. Yeah, I know. Okay, let's go. Here we go. 
Okay, the first question, we'll start off with Louis. Uh, Lou, you could answer first, okay? We got a lot of sure. questions. We really compile them and we try to do the best. You know, a lot of emails came in. We try to condense them. We try to make it, you know, better for everybody. Again, anybody wants to ask a live question, please text us. We'll try to get to that as well. Came in a tremendous amount of emails on this, on this particular topic. First question, my husband has been very distant lately. He's always on his phone and pays very little attention to me and the kids. Wherever I point this out to him, he gets very agitated and he takes his frustration out on us. He claims that he needs to relax after a long day at work, but he does this consistently even during his off days. How do I get through to him? Is this even really considered an addict? <clears throat> so I, I think the question is, how do I get through to him after I have tried to engage him in conventional, non-threatening, let's talk. Can you be open to my experience with you when you're whatever, whatever the, the actual physical uh, way is that he's paying little or no attention, whatever is happening there. And this is a theme that I think is just so important for this evening uh, that transcends this question, but is very germane to this question. And that is, what does a family member do if there really is no response to the concern, to the urgency, to the feelings expressed by the family member. And it, sometimes it's several family members. Sometimes it's children uh, and it's uh, a spouse. Sometimes it's adult children. It can be a variety of people, but if that person who is being focused on as either, either just being involved in a process or in a, uh, a substance, and in this example, it's a process. If they are just not, able to hear clearly there's some defensiveness in this in in on the part of the person who's being uh, attempted to be engaged the the man in this uh, example and what do you do so the answer in a in a simple way is you need to get help yourself and it's true of people that may live with somebody who has a problem with alcohol or somebody that has a problem with work or somebody that has a problem with the internet Whatever the, the actual object is, the medium of the problem, where there may be some addiction, and it may be in a form of compulsivity where it just continues and, and really takes up the focus. And, and in the beginning, it's tough to tell. I said that before. But as, as opposed to continuing to try to fix and to work on changing the behavior of that person that you're having difficulty with, to go and talk with somebody, often a professional, but sometimes somebody in one of these programs that have come about. Every single 12-step program, almost every single 12-step program has a, uh, a, a program for the spouse. For Some programs have uh, uh, a, a subset specifically for children, like Alateen, for the alcoholic, for, for the, the child, and it's all age appropriate. There, there are teenage levels of groups that meet. There are even younger, Alatots is a program that uh, was established years and years ago. And obviously Al-Anon, for those of you who don't know what Al-Anon is, it's for spouses or family members or friends. There are sometimes in the social network, friends that are very, very close to the identified person as having the problem and they they need and require and deserve help and what i say for for a long time and it takes some time for people to get it sometimes what i say is you can't wait for the person with the problem to wake up one day and say okay i'm ready 
you need to stop focusing on that person and not make it contingent that that person's going to get well or is going to even get involved in some kind of recovery program. Because the problem will, invariably, the problem will get worse and worse and worse as time goes on. I just want to put out a disclaimer also, because sometimes people look at me and they say, oh, this guy has been treating alcoholics and drug addicts for so many years. He must look at every single person who takes a drink, everybody who makes kiddish on wine, everybody who has a social drink as having a problem with alcohol. And nothing could be further from the truth. Most people that drink alcohol do not have problems. We've done some research as a, as a, uh, as a treatment uh, uh, culture and as a scientific culture. And the, the, the statistics that come up most uh, often are that one out of 10 people that drinks alcohol has a problem. And that means that nine out of 10 people that drink don't have problems. And so if you're drinking or if you're drinking responsibly and you're, you're truly drinking without any kind of compulsion and there's no consequence, there's no repercussion. That's really what separates people with problems from people that don't have problems. And they're called all sorts of things. And we get into some real quandaries when we start using words that are subjective words that one person, one person will say, well, he's an alcoholic. And the other person will say, well, he's a problem drinker. You know, to some people, there's a real difference between the two. But to me, it's semantics. An alcoholic is somebody who has problems when they drink and they don't have to have problems every time they drink. It's another myth. It's another misconception that every time you drink. No, that doesn't mean that you're an alcoholic, that you have to drink and have a problem every single time you drink. But if you drink and you have problems that you have to deal with afterwards and there are consequences, that's not social drinking. So, you know, we have a, a, a very interesting phenomenon that happens in the, in, the, in the Jewish community on Friday night for Shabbos, where there are families that will remove alcohol when a kid becomes 11, 12, 13, and the children grow and they're now teenagers. And the parents say, we can't have alcohol in the house anymore. We can't drink in front of them. And they have kiddish over grape juice. There are other examples of the same setup with kids that are growing into their adolescent years where the parents do drink and they make kiddish with alcohol. And they do that because they wanna be healthy role models. They wanna role model to their children that you can drink alcohol and not have a problem with it and drink responsibly. So I, I don't have any problem with either of those two scenarios and the decision on the part of the parents unless they don't talk about what they're doing with their kids. If they don't talk about it and they just do it and they expect their kids to understand what's happening, they're missing a huge opportunity. The, the opportunity is to talk about why we're doing what we're doing, why we're removing alcohol from, from the Shabbos table. And in the other case scenario, why we're drinking and we're drinking responsibly and if there's no engagement with the kids on why that's happening and what can be learned and what the difference is, it's a tremendous time to teach. And that's just one example. I'm not sure it's a minor example, but it's one of many, many examples when it comes to teaching your kids about responsibility when it comes to substances. Now, you want to jump on in this one? We have a few live. We yeah, so, so I, I want to get some of the live, but before we get to live, just to what Lewis said a little bit earlier, um, before we get into like the semantics, but the family piece, 
So that's sort of, you know, my role is really to work with the family. And to lose point, I'm curious if everyone here can sort of think of your own family of origin um, and think about the role that you played in your family. Because every single person has a role within the family system. And we learned that pattern really quickly. And we keep just doing that over and over again. And especially when we talk about a family system where there's an addiction, right? We'll have one spouse that, you know, stop drinking, stop drinking, and the other spouse keeps drinking. And that just keeps happening over and over again. And sort of to what Lou is saying, when, when one person in that system changes, they break the wheel. And it, it, puts, it puts more pressure on other people within that system to look a little bit harder at their, at their own, sort of at their own selves, at their own lives. So, um, yeah, I think that's just a really, really important point and a point that's not always stressed. We talk a lot about the identified patient, but, you know, can we also address the other, the other part of the family system? Yeah. I want to let you know, before we go to the next live question, Lou sure. and Nate, we're getting a tremendous amount of texts about eating disorders. Okay, so we're going to, yeah, okay. so we're going to, we're going to get to that. I'm just letting people know that. Sure. Okay, let's go to the first live question. You're on. How are you? Okay, fine. I just have a question. Um, in for either of them and their experience and have they ever encountered i've heard about like an addictive personality where like some people just seem more prone to certain uh, either not just certain addictions but getting addicted period um you know i, I don't know if that's a biochemical or you know we're probably i'm mean, sure there is some kind of basis but um i mean i don't know if that's you know their success in treating that or is it a Maybe, maybe they can uh, channel that energy to something, maybe a positive kind of addiction you know, or a Torah. I mean, I don't know what, but I mean, have you ever had those kind of difficulties or, or I could say experiences, uh, you know, with these kind of people? If, you know, I, wanna, I, I just want to elaborate a little bit what she's saying. I, I spoke about this with you. I'm not clear. No, no, you, you are. Excellent. I just oh. want to elaborate one thing is that in general, I, I, I find that some people that have that addictive personality, like they're more born with it. You know, they have the drinking, the gambling, they have it all like in them. Some people just, they don't enjoy any of this stuff. They just don't have it in their personality. Is it like biochemical? And if it is, is there a way to, okay, sorry. I'll start off, Nate, please yeah, jump sure. right in. Yeah, I, I think your, your, your question is so important. And the answer is yes, there are some people that it is absolutely, from the time they're very young, even before there's any experimentation with quote unquote drugs or, or alcohol, we can see that there is something going on with their use of, of toys, their, uh, their participation in sports, their competitiveness, um, their, the level of their dopamine when there is some kind of challenge, when there is something that feels good, food is sometimes, they say that for many people, food is the first substance of, of addiction because it's the first thing that people are, are involved with. Um, you know, we, we stress that it is not always the case, but at least sometimes, if not often, there is some genetic predisposition. And if you research the family, and sometimes it skips generations. So somebody who, who is in a rehab and they're asked, you know, you have any family members that have problems with alcohol uh, or anything, any, any kind of substance or um, any kind of uh, behavioral compulsivity, they can't name anybody because they, there has been a skipping and the, their parents, uh, even their grandparents did not have any problem with substances, for example. And 
when we trace it back, sometimes they can find out that there was, and, and, and in the past, in past generations, words like alcoholic, especially in the Jewish subculture, were never talked about. They, they were not, first of all, it was so taboo. There was such intense shame for a Jew to have alcoholism back, you know, even, even you know, 50 years ago, less than that, and still is in certain, uh, in certain forms. But the, the propensity can, can be what has been termed, and I think it's used somewhat loosely, an addictive personality. There are some people that have many, many um, objects of their addiction. And they have, they have substances, and they also have activities. They also have process addictions. And some people can't get addip- addicted if they want to to alcohol. They, they are the epitome of social drinkers. But when it, when it comes to thinking about going to a casino, to gamble or placing a bet at a at a racetrack or at a sports uh, bookie, they, their their dopamine, which is is the main neurotransmitter that really gets activated, their dopamine goes wild in terms of the arousal phase, which sometimes, you know, the anticipation before they actually find out if they won the bet or not is much higher than when they win, yeah. or they lose for that matter, and losing can can. This is this is something that is very unique to the the problem gambling uh, population. Losing can actually be an enhancer for them to continue gambling. So the answer is yes. There is such a thing as as profiles of people that have a higher tendency, I would say, to develop some kind of addiction. I don't know about the personality. I think that's kind of a colloquial statement or saying that is very comfortable for people. But there are certainly people that have multiple addictions. There's there's also the phenomenon of people that stop one addiction and actually get treatment for it. But if they don't get some kind of education and some kind of real uh, inculcation that they are prone to develop another addiction. There's a propensity to move to a different addiction, even when they stop one, and that they really need to be careful about that and be very, very wise and uh, be very public with at least a subset of their 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 network, that they can very well move and switch addictions. Yeah. Hey, do you want to jump on this one? Yeah, if I can, just super quickly, um, I appreciate the question. This is actually a question that I bring up in groups, so I'll run a bunch of groups. Um, and, and we'll go around the room and we'll ask for people to describe, you know, how their addiction developed. And there's always people who say, you know, I just have an addictive personality. You know, I, I, I can't just have one Pringle, like one client told me, right? I, I eat the whole thing. I don't know when to stop. Um, I think it's important not to generalize. Everyone's going to have their own sort of... Uh, experience or their history in addiction. But one other point to what Lou is saying with the genetic piece, there's absolutely absolutely a genetic piece to it, but there's also the nurture piece, which is really important. And I, I was gonna say when we did the poll before about the impact of addiction on kids, because kids don't always feel the impact right away. But when you have even a really young kid and he grows up and he sees one of his parents actively escaping, right? or actively doing things maladaptively to cope, right? Even with a phone, right? You can have, and I've had addicts who will tell me in recovery, they won't use their phone in front of their kids because what a child sees, even at the age of one, even six months, a child looks at their parent and the child sees there's something on that device that's more important than me. And they begin to learn that this behavior is not only normal, but, it, but it, it's acceptable and it's a way to cope with stress. And then they become adults and it seems like it's genetic, which absolutely there's a genetic piece, but we can't, you know, we also have to be aware of the impact that uh, nurture plays 
within development of, addic of addiction. But yeah, that's yeah. And I, I would just I, I, I agree. And I would just mention that there's been a lot of work done in our field, our treatment field for decades and decades about the roles that children play in an alcoholic family when one of their parents, for example, has a problem with alcohol. And the roles are uh, the hero role, the kid, and often it's, it's an older child. And if it's a girl in, in, in most traditional families, it is absolutely that person that is a helper, a fixer, who cleans up the mess of the alcoholic who co-parents with her mother or his mother or his father, depending on who the alcoholic is. And that's one role. Another role is the scapegoat, the kid who gets into trouble and actually has the world, and I'm saying that very generally, the world focus on him because he acts out and the world now looks at him and he's the scapegoat. There's a lost child who's very quiet and basically says, I'm not gonna bother anybody, but don't bother me. I'm not going to really interact too much with kids or you, my parents or my siblings. I'm gonna be very, very isolated and withdrawn. And then there's a clown, a mascot, we call that child, who is just making people laugh all day long. And it's very, it's funny because there, there have been some studies about comedians and comedians often have a propensity to come from a home where there was an alcoholic and, and they gravitated to this role of being very funny. And, and the funniness is similar to some of the other roles. Each one of these roles has the same goal, the same motivation, but accomplishes that motivation in very different ways. The hero wants to keep the focus off of the alcoholic. Please don't look at my father. Look at me. I'll, I'll be, you know, the, the top student in yeshiva. I will get straight A's. I will learn all day long. I will excel and achieve all day long. Don't look at my father. The scapegoat says the same thing, but in a totally different set of behaviors. I will act out. You'll be punishing me. I'm going to do things against the rules. But if you look at me, you'll have less time to look at my father who's drinking problematically. The withdrawn child is going to basically say, I'm not going to cause any trouble. So it won't be me, you know, that, that's, going to, that's going to be causing trouble so that you then are wondering about my parents. And the mascot obviously is begging you to look at him. He'll stand on his head 24-7 just so that you look at him and you don't look at his father. Each one of these roles, besides their behavior that they take into adulthood, unless they get some kind of help, has a tendency, at least, it's not guaranteed that they're going to develop problems with alcohol. There are, there are heroes in a, in, in, of children in, in, of alcoholics that will promise they'll never drink like my father did. We hear that day in and day out. With, with adolescents who then either become alcoholics and, and young adults who ironically and seemingly coincidentally marry an alcoholic. They lived with an alcoholic as a parent and lo and behold, they swore off alcoholism themselves and they, they promised everybody and themselves, most importantly, they would never end up with somebody like this problem drinker in their family and lo and behold, this happens because those roles without treatment, without help become so ingrained that if I'm a fixer in my family of origin, I'm very susceptible to being a fixer when I go out into the world, in my social network, and ultimately when I get married. There's nobody that, that is, lends itself better to fixing than somebody with an addiction problem. Okay, we have a lot of live questions. We've got to get them. I know a lot of people are texting. I just want to mention three things very quickly. <laughs> 
first thing, somebody texted, I'm going to send you his name, Lewis, afterwards. And he said I, that I'm sober for, he said, don't mention my name in public. I'm sober for four years and that Lewis saved our family's life and his encouragement of sending us to AA and L, how do you say it? Al-Anon that exists in our community here and here to help. So I'll tell you the person's name afterwards. Next, the person who works for, with Nate, who's the owner, is uh, the CFO of the company, says he's so amazed. I don't need to go here on tonight. He said, anybody that has any family issues, he's offering a free family session with Crossroads, with uh, Recovery at Crossroads, yeah. you know, to see if anybody can, needs any help. They're willing to, because he's so movement, he said, free family consultation. <laughs> the third thing I want to say, just to, just to harp on it, put in the tire of it, you know, when somebody comes from a family that is alcoholics and the hereditary, uh, I have it in my blood, what should I do? Rabbi Kalish was here two weeks ago and he said, such a great word, I'm going to repeat it and then we're going to go further. He said, why when we die, we say, what is our fathers, right? We do our various, we go, what, is, what does that have to do with us? So he said, the person, every person gets a tremendous amount of mileage from his parents, but also from generation to generation, there's a lot of bad traits. There's a lot of bad traits that are also... One second. There's a lot of bad traits that also come down from your parents, right? Whether it's drinking, whatever it is. But at the end of the day, it's your Christ still to get the help and to figure it out and to work it out. But the bottom line is, it was a great part. So I thought that was amazing. Okay, let's go to the next live question. You're on. Okay, can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Okay, this is a very general question. Uh, it could be that Dave has touched on this before. But what is the definition of a uh, of an addict, and when does a person know that it's time from going to, from uh, regular self work to treatment? Great question. question. Yeah, we, we should not leave this evening without at least taking some cracks at answering that question. And there are many answers, and I'm going to give you a very very simple one, and initially oversimplified, but but we can we can really put some meat on it. We can we can develop it. An alcoholic an addict, and listen to all the words, listen to all the names of this state, this condition that we call this person, an alcoholic, an addict, a substance abuser, somebody who's substance dependent, a chemically dependent person, a problem user, the, the names go on and on. And some of them are just euphemisms because there are a lot of people that would much rather be called an alcoholic than a drug addict. It's just less stigmatized. For some people, other people would say, please call me an alcoholic I, or call me a drug addict. I don't please don't call me an alcoholic. So some of this comes from where we learn these words, where we learn. And, and it's a great exercise. And I, I'm not I promise to get back to your question. I don't want to digress, but I want to tell you that it would be very interesting for the people in this audience to take a moment and think about where you first heard the word alcoholic. Where you first heard the, the phrase drug addict. I can tell you straight off the bat that I heard the word alcoholic in the most innocent way back in probably 1963, 1964, driving in a car with my parents and my sister going through a neighborhood of lower Manhattan from Queens. I grew up in Queens and we had some relatives that lived in New Jersey and we would go through on a hot summer day every July. We had a family get together. We, we went through the Bowery 
Now, for those of you who remember the Bowery, it's very interesting because it, it doesn't look today like it did in, 19, in the 60s. It looks gentrified and really upscale. The Bowery is no longer what it was, but back then it was somewhat, and I hate to be pejorative, but there was, there was a seediness to the Bowery. There were men with heavy coats in July and paper bags with bottles and I looked out the car window and my sister was sitting next to me, much younger than me. She became a psychiatrist, my sister. So she knows about this. And we've talked many, many times about it. And I would say to the people in the front of the car, the front seat, my parents, what's going on with those men? Why are they wearing heavy coats in July? And why? Do, what's in the paper bag? What, what is the, There's a bottle in that paper bag. What's going on? And totally naively and innocently without any pejorative malicious intent one of my parents would say oh those are alcoholics that's the first time i ever heard that word and i mean the reality of that statement is that profile of an alcoholic is one out of a hundred one percent of all alcoholics are skid row and in that late stage today we would we would not be talking about just men because women are part of that category also, but it's a, it's a, it's, it's a very, very small percentage of all alcoholics. It's the late stages. So this is where people can get real misinformation about the stages and this profile that you gotta be in the late stages to have a problem with alcohol. To get back to the question, my definition very simply, is it an alcoholic or a substance abuser or any other word you wanna use, a drug addict, is somebody in whose life that substance, whether it be alcohol or some other substance or some other name of a substance, is having problems created by his or her use, that there are consequences to the use. Sometimes the consequences happen while somebody is drinking and drugging, but most often the consequences happen afterwards, or at least much of the time, the consequences happen afterwards. And what you can do to simplify this and make it down to, down to earth and really, really understandable is you can really equate the word consequence with the word loss or the word problem. And that really means that people that have problems with drugs, alcohol and process addictions, process behaviors that become problems are people that lose things. They lose. So an alcoholic is somebody that loses because of their drinking, directly related to their drinking. They may lose because of some indirect losses related to their drinking, but the loss, whether it be emotional or it be concrete, abstract. So that late stage alcoholic on the Bowery that I noticed when I was a little kid had suffered very, very concrete, tangible loss. He was, he lost his family. He was, and I'm being very general right now, but that's the epitome of a late stage person who's on the Bowery in 1960. He has nobody, he has nobody who he's connected with. Maybe social services. Maybe he's getting food stamps from somebody. Maybe he has a caseworker, but he, he has his, his disease, his alcoholism has created such a variety and a myriad of consequences that he loses close to everything. And if he keeps drinking, that late stage alcoholic will absolutely lose his life because of some kind of physical um, consequence because of the alcohol. But who knew that guy 10 years before I saw him? What did he look like 10 years before? 
it's very possible that he had a job and a family, an intact family at some point in his life and much tougher to see, much tougher to see that that was somebody who with continued drinking was going to continue to lose. And that, that cycle of loss was just going to continue until, until sometime and for whatever reasons he was able to stop. It's never too late as long as you're alive to stop. Right. Okay. Let's jump into the next question. Nate, and you maybe take it first, but um, we have a lot of lives. So I wonder really want to not come out. We didn't even get through so many of the emails. Okay. You're on. Uh, hi. Thank hi. you for the question. Uh, Baruch Hashem, I'm not an addict, but uh, my situation, just like many others in life, is that I go through, like was mentioned in the introduction, I go through stressful periods in life. I have sometimes difficulties. And sometimes to relieve the pain, I don't think I get addicted, but I just sometimes go spend excessive amount of time on the internet looking at news or good, maybe not anything that has addictive material, just at the news or regular things to distract myself from pain and stress. Um, even, you know, when my thing passes, I could go back to regular life. Now, I realize that even though I don't think it's the healthiest thing, because I think I'm not really guarded, and there is obviously places I could but someone could fall into the wrong pits. I want to know, is there any other alternative, healthier method to be able to release that stress and pain and relieve oneself instead of having to do what I'm doing? Okay, um, so I, I guess I'll take it quick. Um, are there other ways? I'm sure there are. But I think this is sort of a really important question because um, to what Lou was saying before, a lot about addiction is what are the consequences, right? How severe is it? We're all going to have things that are not 100% perfectly adaptive in terms of coping, right? We're going to have some things that we do that we'd rather we did a little bit less. I'm more curious about the feeling of what happens when you do it. Is there self-loathing? Do you beat yourself up? Does it become a vindictive cycle where you beat yourself up and then you do it again? And, it, and it, it feeds into sort of this negative self image that we create. Can we shift that? Meaning before we begin changing, you know, I need to be different. Can we be okay with who we are? This is what it is. This is what I'm struggling with right now. I'm doing it because I'm trying to relieve stress. I know it's not the greatest thing in the world, but this is part of my humanity. This is sort of who I am right now before we move on to sort of fixing. I don't know if that makes sense, but I feel like a lot of times we want to take a sledgehammer to our lives. And before we do that, can we accept who we are? Because if, as long as we're holding on to that sledgehammer, nothing's ever going to be good enough. Um, yeah, that's what I got. Excellent. And, and I'll just add, the people around the person who is watching too much news, for example, or playing on his his iPhone or um, involved in any other kind of behavior that is taking him away from people that he's with, particularly in a family context. The people around have a, a, a chance to notice this behavior and, and also have a reaction, particularly children and spouses, that, that is really something that's detrimental to them and to the relationship. And the person that is involved in the news or playing or being preoccupied with media with some kind of medium 
you know, this is why there is such a huge um, focus now on electronic devices because, and there are rehabs for people that have a compulsivity and have gotten involved with the cycle of being involved with whatever the electronic device is. It could be a phone, it could be a, a computer, it could be a television, whatever it is, it's really not important what the medium is. It's what happens to them when they engage in it and what they're losing and the reaction they're having from other people. And Nate is on target because their self-esteem, and especially when you get busted, when your kid tells you, Tati, I want to talk. I want to show you my homework. I want to talk with you about a Parsha. And, you know, there's just no time because you're so engrossed in this, this, this phone or whatever it is. And that hits a button often. It sometimes is the beginning of somebody starting to look at what's going on. But often in the beginning, it just creates defensiveness and, and the dukes get put up and, you know, I'm not hurting anybody. I'm taking some time for myself. I'm quote unquote relaxing. That was the first example that we talked about. I'm just trying to wind down. And so again, it becomes when did somebody cross over the line and go from social recreational use to a more compulsive kind of cycle that Nate um, referred to? Let's, let's, let's shift now to the next a little bit of the next topic. It's a big topic. Everybody's talking about it now, especially New Jersey becoming legal and all these things. So let's let's a little bit uh, get into this. Recently, my husband has been consuming THC products, weed, marijuana, edibles. He says a lot of guys from Shul do it. It's healthy social outlet for him. I don't really feel comfortable about this. Is, re is weed really not so bad? I, I find marijuana to be one of the toughest drugs to stop using. For somebody who crosses over a line and becomes a, a very chronic kind of smoker, um, we could debate whether marijuana is safer or is as safe as alcohol. A lot of people compare marijuana to alcohol and probably the people that have voted to legalize marijuana would say, you know, if you use marijuana socially, recreationally, what's the harm? There, there's a lot of harm. There's less known about marijuana even today than there is about a lot of other drugs, um, even drugs that, quote unquote, would be looked at as being more dangerous. The problem with marijuana for a lot of people is they use it and they become very docile. They become very calm. Some people that use it become very anxious and they keep using it. And you can certainly tell somebody who has a dependence on marijuana if they have crummy anxiety oriented experience with, is with it and they keep using it. That, that, that for sure is a sign of a problem. But a lot of people use marijuana and they don't get into trouble. There are people that use marijuana and drive and they get ticketed and they get their license taken away. So that, that certainly can be a way of, of getting caught and it can be the beginning of some kind of recovery sometimes. But I find marijuana being sometimes more difficult than other, other drugs because of what is seemingly a very, very um, gentle, light, non-consequential relationship, seemingly that people develop. There are some people that become, they become vegetables when they, when they smoke a little bit. And there are other people that learn how to really, really compensate and get used to THC being in their body and they can work. There are people that work. There are people that, you know, went to college and got degrees and all sorts of stuff. And they were chronically using marijuana throughout the experience. So it's, it's a very paradoxical drug. 
Nate, uh, please tell me. Yeah, no, so, so to, to lose point, I mean, we were all, I mean, I don't know how many people here were in New Jersey when it hit the ballot uh, a couple of months ago. Um, it, it's a really, really tough, tough question. I mean, I have clients who've used THC responsibly and it's helped them tremendously with anxiety. I've worked with a lot of Iraq war veterans who are combat veterans and THC is probably the safest thing that they can use for painkiller as a painkiller and, and it works incredibly. Um, I've also worked with a client who committed a crime when he was high on weed and is now facing 20 years in prison. Um, it, 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 it's incredibly, it's incredibly hard to say either way, either way, you know, either weed is, is good or isn't, isn't good. I think we're in a, we're in a place right now where it's legal going back to what Lou's been saying this entire time. What are the effects that it has on you? I met a guy two days ago in the cell phone store. Um, we just started talking and he came over and, and he's like, Oh, what do you do? You're a therapist. And he just told me the first time that I used weed, I had such a severe panic attack. I thought I was having a heart attack. They had to call out Saul. Um, you know, everyone's going to have sort of a different experience. The question is, what are the effects that it's having on you? What are the effects it's having on your family? And I think just as a broad sort of idea, the fact that this person's spouse is asking it as a question, I think that's indicative that there is an underlying issue here, right? If everything was really great, they probably wouldn't be logged on at 11 o'clock at night on a, on, a part, on a Coach Menachem show asking the question. So I think that's probably, really They're probably just addicted to me. Okay. That, that's <laughs> a serious <laughs> issue. Yeah. <laughs> okay, you're on live. Okay, hi, you hear me? Are you able to hear me? Okay. Um, first of all, I'm not going to sleep tonight. That much I could tell you after hearing this. I wanted to ask you what you think about the fact that they are selling alcohol-laced sorbet in grocery stores with no restriction. Like any child can pick it up and buy it, and no one's going to stop him. And uh, women are serving it. They're proudly presenting it. They make their own in their house, and they serve it on Shabbos. What is your take on that? I hope they're not serving it to uh, a recovering alcoholic because well, they don't even it, think about that. They I, don't know, care. I, I, was they being, I got you. Okay. I was being facetious yeah. to some extent. Right. To some extent, I was being straight up. But but um, yeah, I mean, uh, alcohol that is not cooked out that's in food products has alcohol in it that is very, very um, affecting. Lulu, I just want to confirm, we're talking about also about the new, the new ISIS, you know what I'm talking about? You know the ISIS? Sure. But every Shalom Zacher, every kid's are just like, you know, it's like drinking. Oh my you know? gosh. Yeah. Do you ever wonder why the teenagers are huddled around that, that, that person who's giving out the ISIS? Are people, are people normal? I don't understand this. I don't understand this. Can, is there anything I can do about this? I mean, I could speak to the guy from the group. He just, just got it in. What you could do is you can go to all the alcohol stores and buy them all. <laughs> They're not in the alcohol. I wish they were in the, in the liquor stores, if they would sell them in the liquor stores. It's right. not a joke. Why are you laughing? Why are they selling it in a grocery store where any kid could pick it up? Why is that allowed? Yeah. So I, 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 guess, I truly do not know. Go ahead, Nate. You're no, so okay. I, I think this is an issue. I, I think really the issue is I, I worked on a case where uh, there were some Bakram and Yeshiva who were mixing punch with alcohol and not telling other people that the punch had alcohol in it. And you had dozens of Bakram people, kids who didn't want to get drunk were all of a sudden having the effects. I think, I think that's a, that is a serious issue when people are being given it and they don't know what they're, what they're taking. Um, I do just want to sort of shift for a minute 
Um, again, not to demonize alcohol use, like Lou said, nine out of 10 people are going to drink, nine out of 10 people are going to eat those ices, and they're going to be fine, and there are going to be no ramifications. But alcohol is an incredibly addictive drug, and it is only one of two drugs that if a person is highly addictive and they stopped cold turkey, they can die from withdrawal seizure. Um, and that's something that we really don't talk about. Um, I, I don't know if anybody here is familiar with sort of the detox realm of treatment. Um, I've worked with incredibly upstanding people in the community, people who daven three times a day, go to a share every single day, and they drank to a point where if they would have stopped cold turkey, they, they were actually at, at risk of, of dying just from the, from the withdrawal and they need a detox. So um, I, I, again, just, just sharing a little bit, not to demonize alcohol use, because like Lou said, nine out of 10 people are not gonna have a problem, but I've, I've worked with one of the clinical directors of one of the largest referral agencies in America, and this person actually told me that they feel we're shifting very quickly to weed, Percocet, pills, opioids. We're addressing all those issues and we may start forgetting about alcohol. Wow. Alcohol is incredibly prevalent. It's, it's at every Kiddush, it's at every Simcha. And again, it, it isn't an issue for a lot of people, but you're gonna have that one kid who is, who has a, um, he has, he's more sort of um, either because of his experiences or because of his genetics or because of his family life. He's a little bit more drawn to the alcohol and the effect that the alcohol has on him. And that kid, if he has that at a young age, you know, 10, 20 years later, we're talking about a completely different case. Right. And I think the disclaimer is that nine out of 10 people that drink do not have problems, but that's not nine out of 10 children. It's also not nine out of 10 adolescents. When I when I started to work with the the from community in a rehab setting back in the early 2000s, the Otskin Center, we would interview adolescents that came in and almost to the adolescent, almost everyone that we interviewed had their first experimentation. And I don't think this is so unique and I don't think it's going to be that surprising, but almost every teenager had their first experience around some kind of. Jewish ritual, some kind of Jewish tradition, whether it be a, uh, an event, often it was an event like a Shalom Zacher or a Bar Mitzvah or a wedding or even Kiddush um, on, on, on Shabbos where parents were not supervising what kids could, uh, could drink and were not really taking charge of, of that whole process. And it started innocently and it can, it can be very innocent and it can it could really amount to nothing or it could amount to the beginning of something that really gains traction. And, and many of the kids that, that made their way to a rehab when they were, you know, 17, 18 years old had a beginning experience with alcohol at Purim, at Sivchas Torah, and, and even, you know, just on a regular Shabbos at a Kiddush in a very secretive way. And they liked the, nobody likes the taste. So any kid who tells you, well, I drank this because it really tasted great. I, they're lying through their teeth most of the time. What they liked was the effect. They liked the warm, glowing feeling that took over. And when they drank a little bit more, and this is where tolerance over time starts to go up. But in the beginning, generally tolerance is very low. Sometimes Ironically, tolerance is high for a child, but most of the time it's low and it takes very little to feel the effects, to feel that warm, glowing feeling. That's what people like when they drink. The difference between problem drinkers and social drinkers is social drinkers may like that feeling and they stop. 
they don't go past a certain point where they start to uh, exhibit personality change, where they start to suffer this loss we're talking about, where they start to embarrass themselves, when they start to say things that are not who they are and that hurt people's feelings. Those are the kinds of abusive uh, elements of, of people that are either on their way to having problems or they, they are given that feedback afterwards. Somebody who doesn't have a problem may be told that they abused alcohol the night before and they make serious changes. And you will not see them do this again because they really have control not to do it and they won't do it. The person that is on his way to having an alcohol problem may want to make changes, but unbeknownst to them, there's a repetition of the personality change. There's a repetition and it may not be the next time. They may be able to be very under control for the next week or the next month or even longer. But if they have a problem, it's going to come up again. Okay. Um, let's really start. Let's get tonight started already. Okay, you're on live. Um, hey, thanks for having me. Um, <clears throat> so I actually, it's a two-part question, maybe even a three-part question, but how do you feel about um, Suboxone maintenance? You know, a, a, a lot of people go through um, Suboxone through for detox and get caught in this, you know, cycle of being on Suboxone long-term. And then, you know, there's a lot of people who are very, apprehensive or not <laughs> in traditional treatment and they're exploring things like smart recovery or even using uh hallucinogenics to deal with um you know trauma related things can you explain it nate to everybody what what, what it means exactly sure so suboxone is a partial antagonist um it, it's a drug that they give to individuals who uh usually for opioid abuse and it gives them a little bit of of a high but it also blocks um, some of the opioid receptors. So even if they were to take the drug, uh, the urges go down, the, the need for it goes down. And even if they were to take it, they wouldn't feel the same high that they usually do. Um, the reason why Suboxone is incredibly um, challenging uh, is because A, it's a drug created by the US government. So it's pure and it's incredibly strong. It's backed by, by uh, major pharmaceutical companies and it's incredibly addictive. Um, that alone can be incredibly addictive. Um, I'll just share my own personal opinion. And Lou, I, I'd love to hear from you. I, I don't, I'm not dogmatic. I don't have, you know, it, it's horrible or it's great. It really depends on if it works for you. I've worked with clients who have done really, really well on Suboxone, um, or clients who had a seven-year history of, of, of uh, daily fentanyl use, and Suboxone was a life-saving drug for them. And then I've worked with clients who use Suboxone as a crutch, and it sort of led to their next relapse. It, it really depends on the individual. Um, yeah, and, and I think that's sort of where, again, I don't know, Lou, I, I assume you have sort of the same approach, but you know, what works for you and how can we help you in guiding that? Even with the smart recovery that you brought up, um, is it working for you is really the most important question you need to ask. It's not about, are you, you know, in this program or in that program? Are you getting the help you need? Are you becoming more functional? And again, like Lou, to Lou's point, what's going on around you? Has your relationship with your wife changed? Has your relationship with your children changed? Are you able to hold down a job? Are you not lying anymore? Or I don't mean you, but is the addict not lying or not being manipulative, right? A lot of those are really key signs to long-term recovery. And if Suboxone or Smart Recovery or 12 Steps or inpatient or psilocybin or in mushrooms for, for treating trauma, if that's gonna get you to where you need to be, then, you know, by all means, but go ahead, Lou. 
Yeah, I very, very similar to what you your experience was, Nate, and what you said. I, I um, learned about Suboxone when it was first coming out in, in the late, I, I think the late 80s, but certainly in the 90s is when I was running a, a rehab and we had opiate addicts and this new buprenorphine is the chemical um, uh, generic word for uh, Suboxone. Suboxone is the brand name. The the therapeutic effect that we found with Suboxone was really, really very helpful and very healthy. If it was used in a way where the patient was educated about it, and, and by the way, this all began in inpatient, very controlled environments where the Suboxone was administered and the patient was a resident of a program for at least 30 days, more often than that, 60 or 90 days and was being administered by by nurses and, and doctors and was being schooled, was really being educated on the fact that this was a drug that could help somebody go through detox of opiates, but it was not it was a means to an end. It wasn't something that could be ongoing because it was a highly abusive drug. And I think we learned more about it as Suboxone became more mainstream. And what I've seen that's contrary to the experience of the, the people that were given Suboxone and really, really got off their opiate and then did not get addicted to Suboxone. They stopped using because it was tapered off and they were told and educated, this is the game plan. You're not going to be using this forever. It's not like methadone. It's very different than what methadone was to heroin addiction. What I've seen in, in cases, and to be honest, I don't um, uh, I don't treat a lot of patients that are involved with Suboxone these days. The, the nightmares of people that get addicted to Suboxone and now have another opiate addiction is, and I, 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 I'm not big on blaming people, but sometimes it's because it's being dispensed by somebody who has a certification to dispense Suboxone who really doesn't understand what can happen and who is, is kind of doing it in a mechanical kind of road way. And if a, if a patient doesn't really get the training that this is a means to an end, and at some point sooner than later, we need to taper you off because at, certain, at a certain time frame, you're going to be off Suboxone. And that's the mindset. If it just goes on and on, it becomes very, very, it's habit forming. It's a habit forming physically and it's habit forming psychologically as well. Okay. You mentioned, uh, Chaim mentioned the, uh, the idea of psychedelics. I think, I'm not sure if you were alluding to psychedelics these days, that in some very controlled, controlled environments are treating depression and are treating uh, mood disorders. Um, I, I'm open to it. Uh, and and I, I shudder to even say that because there was a time when I wouldn't have been open to it. But I have been reading and seeing some results but the, the caveat is it's got to be so controlled. It can't be, you know, going to a Grateful Dead concert and dropping some uh, some blotter uh, acid or, or, you know, something like that, or just using psilocybin mushrooms to get high. It's got to be very, very controlled with, with therapists right there involved in the experience. And even then, for a recovering person, I... I would have some hesitation, but for people that don't have a problem, a history of, of some kind of addiction, if it's done with real judicious supervision, 
and therapeutic context. It has worked. For, it, it's, it can't be argued. It's worked for some people. It, it may be very prone to be written off by the recovery culture because it's hard to understand how a, a, a quote unquote psychedelic drug is going to be used therapeutically to treat a psychiatric problem. But the reality is it has been known to work. Okay, There's so many questions we still have to get to. I'm sorry, let's let's put a little speed on it. You're on now. Is it me? It's you. Okay, thank you. Um, so uh, I, I, I need some uh, advice. Um, I, I have an addictive behavior related to disordered eating. Um, basically, in, in, in like my effort to eat, like to not to eat a lot, I have this um, addic addiction to fill up on water and like diet pop, especially I like like the carbonation and it gives me, makes me feel really good. Um, and this like, it has definitely caused serious ramifications in terms of like con Constant, like in the past, constantly low sodium and many, many, many hospitalizations because of it and serious damage to other parts of my body. And um, eating disorder treatment doesn't really work because in inpatient treatment, you constantly hear staff encourage people to drink. And so the behavior doesn't really get addressed. And I know what my limit of how much fluid I should be drinking is. But, and I got myself better for a year. I struggled for a year, got better for a year. And now I relapsed. I see my behavior as an addiction. And I'm just wondering if there would be like, a, in addition to like the eating disorder component, is there like a 12 step program that might be right for me? All right. I think there can be. I think I, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is um, a connection, a working, healthy, trusting connection with some medical professional that, that can help monitor this. I think, you know, the, the question of certain specific foods that are triggers in some way in terms of mood and in terms of propensity to continue to repeat them uh, is something that, that you could really look into. Um, I think that food addiction, just to be a little bit more general uh, for, the, for the folks that asked about food addiction, food is one of those substances that, uh, and, and there are processes as well, sexual um, uh, behavior is a process that really involves in a healthy way, certainly in the firm community it, with very uh, important guidelines, it's, it's a healthy behavior. So people do not have to learn how to use heroin healthily. They don't have to learn how to, they don't even have to learn how to drink in a way that's non-problematic. Drinking is something that you can become abstinent from. Gambling, I, I believe, although there may be some people that would argue this, I believe strongly in my orientation that gambling is something you can become abstinent from. Nobody has to gamble. And if it's a problem, you can learn with the help of other people. And certainly GA has been incredible for people, is a large and ironically, we as a, as a Jewish community of whatever affiliation of Judaism we have, have had a very high, high um, uh, percentage 
in GA uh, from the very beginning of GA, Jews have been um, you know, very susceptible to gambling problems for whatever reason. I, I don't know that I want to get into that. But eating is, is an example of something that you can learn how to do in whatever form it is. And, and this does speak to the question that you're talking about. There may be certain foods that you truly have a quote unquote allergy to that are, you know, once you start eating them, it's very hard to stop. You can, you can learn how to become abstinent from those specific foods, from, from certainly from, for the person who has compulsive overeating or the person who's bulimic and uh, purges their food after they eat or the person who is anorexic and starves themselves, there, there, there's treatment. And often when, when it gets into an advanced stage of any of those eating disorders, there's really a need for professional help. And there are, there are programs, 12-step programs that are incredibly helpful. But I'm not sure how well I did answering your specific question, because there are some nuances to it that I think a, a medical person might be more um, astute in terms of directing you um, to the right. Okay. Well, the right let's treatment. go to the next question. It's going to tie into it, and then maybe Nate will go first. You're on. Um, hi. Thank you so much for your show, for um, for the specialist on. I actually, yeah, it was related. Um, so I had a classmate over 20 years ago who suffered from anorexia, got married, had kids, and succumbed. Um, another relative, you know, family family of a family member who's bulimic. The pressure, then there's crazy pressures to stay slim. I personally suffered from um, the opposite. I was overweight, and I'm in a family of overweight people, and um, I ended up having um, gastric. Um, uh, you know, uh, bariatric surgery. Um, Baruch Shem, I've kept it off. And mostly by listening to a healthy Overeaters Anonymous, a vision for you online. Um, it's online on the phone, but, and I've been working, you know, and it's tremendous, it's such hard work to keep the weight off. And I, I really work on it one day at a time because um, um, it's, it's impossible. Uh, the, the, the food's everywhere. It just is in the firm community. It really is. Um, so, and, and the thing is the numbers of people that I hear that are actively working to gain weight so that they can have the bariatric surgery or the people that are just having surgeries left and right now, um, wouldn't that be, um, I mean, it's, um, I consider it for myself, a medical intervention. So can you both speak to um, like food addiction um, in the from community? Cause I could tell you personally, like uh, for me, especially after the gastric surgery that I had, um, I can, I can have a, I can shut down after a bowl of cookies or, you know, these kids that are having crazy sugar highs um, yeah, so my, it's a general question of, of addictive, I guess, compulsive, addictive behavior and, um, food, sorry, they talk about it as addictive behaviors and addictive, um, compulsive behaviors and compulsive eating, um, and, and ingredients. Um, if you could both speak to that, please. Thank you. Nate, you want to go? Yeah, I'll, I'll sort of try and address this. First of all, I, I really appreciate the question because, a, we don't talk about this enough, and B, for the 497 people who are on, 
if we can if we can just raise our awareness a little bit, right? The next time we're at a family function, we don't need to force everyone to eat, right? We don't need to be, it's a sort of very Jewish thing to do, Hanukkah parties are coming up, but there are people that really struggle with this. And the struggle is very, very similar to any other process addiction. I've worked with individuals who have told me they've eaten so many cookies, the back of their throat burned and they would just keep eating, right? It wasn't about the sustenance, it was about the feeling that they were gaining from it. Um, so I think you're absolutely right. It can, it can 100% be an addictive behavior, a process addiction. To lose point, one of the challenges with this is that we have to eat, right? We don't have a choice. There's no way to become abstinent. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, Freddie, to your point, um, I, I, all the credit to you for, first of all, coming on here and, and, and sharing that publicly, but secondly, joining OA, right? And joining a fellowship of other people where you get to listen to their experience, their strength, their hope, other people who have gone through similar things. And, and, and Lou, you know, anybody here who's been to a 12-step meeting, you know that the bond, the fellowship that happens in those rooms, it's incredibly powerful. It's sort of like a band of brothers, almost, I've actually seen similar bonds to military veterans, right? We're in the trenches together. We're struggling with this together. We haven't figured it out but I'm going to help you and you're going to help me. And we're going to work with each other to support each other. Um, so, you know, I, I think, A, thank you for bringing it up. It's incredibly important. And what you're doing is really, really sort of um, the path to recovery or sobriety or balancing, right? Knowing that it's not really about the food. It's about what the food gives us, right? The warmth, the comfort, um, and being able to sort of address some of those underlying issues and get the support that you're, you're getting. I think that's really really important. Lou, you want to? Yeah, I would just, I, I agree 100%. And Frady, thank you um, for bringing it up. This is a somewhat of an advertisement for 12-step programs in general. And, and Nate said it beautifully. Um, I have had my, my share of folks that um, had all different kinds of uh, bypasses and sleeves and, and um, gastric work done. Um, and, and the problem has been when there was no support other than this physical um, procedure that created a smaller stomach or, or uh, a, a kind of guideline and a boundary for, for food. And um, there's, there's been some very, very dangerous stuff that has happened without there being a change in relationship with food. That's why diets don't work. That's why OA doesn't talk about diets. Uh, Weight Watchers doesn't even talk about diets anymore. We've become much more sophisticated, but it's easier said than done for all the reasons that Nate spoke about and that Frady spoke about, that, that, that it is the first um, the first substance that, that people are exposed to. And in our culture, you know, it is about warmth. Often food is about soothing feelings, uh, about um, medicating feelings. And before you know it, people are using food in a compulsive way. And the, the beauty of 12-step programs is they don't end. Good therapy whether it's residential, followed by outpatient work and private pr private psychotherapists, whoever it is that's helping, good therapy has an end. It has an end. It's supposed to have an end. If it goes on and on, you know, forever and forever, there's something wrong with the therapy. It can start again. It can stop and it can start at a different time to, to treat something else or to, to, to work on something that really didn't get taken care of. But the, the difference between good therapy and 12-step recovery is that 12-step has no necessary, necessarily no necessarily an ending to it. It, it continues 
and it's one day at a time. You've heard all the slogans and the phrases. It's very mainstream right now. And I have to tell you, the, the folks that do um, some kind of procedure um, and, and they don't really change their relationship with food often have continuing problems. After a honeymoon period sometimes, after years sometimes, they go back to compulsive eating and it can be life-threatening. Okay, um, let's bring this up because we, we gotta bring it up. Um, Lou and Nate, just for Tina's purpose, we're gonna talk about sex addiction as adult addiction and internet addiction, we're talking obviously about porn addiction. So let's just preface it that way, okay? Because we have a lot of people on. A lot of questions came in this way. This is more the generic question, generic question, but you know, we'll deal with it. My husband has a few addictions such as vaping, and he's always on his phone. He has a serious adult addiction. These addictions are causing him not to keep Shabbos in private and ruining our marriage. And I'm really concerned about the safety of my family, young children. I want to know is there hope and recovery, and how concerned should I be with my family's safety? If there is hope, where could I try to get to seek him help if he is willing to go? So about 10 years ago, I was getting inundated with, with these kinds of problems. And I, that euphemism adult problems is, it's a new one to me, but it's, it's beautiful. I, any euphemism that will help somebody get help, I'm all for. The, the, um, on, the, on the hierarchy of shame, there's no addiction that's more shameful for people than sex addiction, than pornography addiction, than uh, images, um, whatever the medium is. And to be honest with you, it happens with both men and women, as shocking as that might be, because it's just another myth that it's only, it's only men that have this, um, this uh, challenge. It can be women as well, and there is hope and there's help. And it requires some direction. It requires some honesty. Uh, often people that are married to somebody with a porn addiction um, need to get help themselves, just like in the scenario with alcoholism, that I would suggest don't wait for your husband to say and wake up one morning and say, okay, I want to go get some help now. Get help yourself. There are therapists that are trained. There are from therapists in our community that are trained now and they will do an evaluation and they will start to help you. There are places that you can meet with other people of the same gender. Uh, if it's women, it's spouses that have husbands that have problems with porn, there are answers. And, and some of them are learning the, the facts, learning the truth and connecting with other people, other women for women and men for men who have really been in the same boat and are moving through this and, and seeing some important bonding go on and networking and there are solutions to this problem. Yeah. Yeah. So just to piggyback off of that, off of what Lou had shared, um, it, it's absolutely a, a, a very, very common issue. Um, I've worked with some therapists who are leaders in the field of treating sort of these adult addictions. And they've told me, unfortunately, they're in Besden every week. Um, this is, and these are not non-Jewish therapists, um, but this is uh, unfortunately a very common issue. And it's not just an issue in our community. Reluctantly, there are these research papers that are starting to come out on the impact of children, because we're gonna start seeing 20 years from now, adults who were children growing up in a world where everything was accessible to them. And what impact did that have on their relationships? Um, so I, I do think it's a very, very big issue. Um, is there help? Absolutely. Um, there, are, there are a lot of support groups out there. There are programs out there. Like Lou said, there are therapists in the community that are, are, are incredibly trained 
at treating individuals who are struggling with an adult or internet sort of addiction or process behavior. Um, the one thing that I would just add with not talking about the family piece, if there's an individual individual here who is struggling, whether it's a food addiction or it's a process addiction, adult, whatever it is, what do we gain from the behavior? What does it do for us? I think it's an incredibly important question because it's not about the behavior. As long as we, we sort of, as, as long as we're attacking the symptomatology, we end up creating the disease that we, that we fear, right? So we attack, you know, don't drink, don't eat, you know, don't watch things on the internet. And we create sort of this, this fight. We, we don't actually get anywhere, but where does it come from? What do I gain from it? What does it do for me? And a lot of people, and again, just very quickly, there are a lot of attachment disorders, uh, trauma, communication issues, individuals who are naturally passive aggressive and they find other ways of expressing themselves or self-soothing, whether it's depression or trauma. And I think those are really uh, sort of the issues that, that, that we can address. But yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of awareness out there, even though we don't always talk about it, but there's also a lot of help. I just want to add one other thing because Nate mentioned uh, one of the three A's. The three A's are something that we teach people in educational programs like this program and also in therapeutic programs that, that have made pornography as one, um, one medium uh, of this problem we're talking about so, so um, far-reaching. The three A's, each one of these words starts with the letter A. And Nate mentioned one of them, access. The accessibility of pornography and anything that can be construed as pornography is just incredible these days. It's everywhere and on any phone or any uh, computer. So access, accessibility. The other two are anonymity. You can do this kind of behavior without anybody knowing. You can, you can go into a bathroom with a phone, you can hide in a closet with a computer and you can watch all day long if you, if you can set up your lifestyle that way. So there's an anonymity, nobody will know, nobody knows. People are shocked when they hear that somebody has been watching porn for you know, years and years. And the other one is affordability. It doesn't cost any money. You can, certainly you can pay money, everybody knows that, but the reality is you don't have to, you can watch for free. Filters have been very helpful as part of a treatment plan, but not as a sole means of fixing the problem. Filters, filters can be um, undermined. People can get around them. So see a professional. Go, for, go to talk to somebody. If you're the, the family member of somebody with a porn problem, it's not something that you can fix by, your help, by yourself. You need help doing that. Okay, amazing. Let's go. We have another live question. Try to get one more live in and one more regular, and then we're gonna to go to closing. It's late. We 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 barely touched what we needed to go tonight. By the way, Amir. Wait one more second. Okay. I want to get a little bit into what spouses deal with. I think it's an important topic we didn't touch on, and this question really emphasizes this. I'm ready to face reality. I suffer from anxiety from just thinking my spouse is back at the casino or drinking with his friends when he says he's going out. How do I learn to trust him? I can't just let go because I know he's he has a gambling issue, but I can't always think he's lying to me. How do I balance when you're dealing with a spouse with an addiction? How do you balance between not going neurotic and having a nervous breakdown every time they go out? And also at the end of the day, being responsible, not closing your eyes. Great question. 
Yeah, I, I think that um, in, a, in, a, in a, a best case scenario, there is a learning process about what the addiction is. And there's also a interpersonal piece of work that gets done with a, a, a facilitator, a therapist, so that you can talk about this with your loved one, with your spouse, and you can together come up with some kind of game plan. I mean, I'm assuming that the person is aware they have a problem and is in some kind of recovery. If they're not in recovery, then it's it's an unrealistic expectation to accept to expect that you're going to be comfortable when they come and go. Um, what you can do about it in terms of directly affecting it is something that it will take some recovery on your part. And that's why when we talk about family members, we talk about their recovery. We don't talk about just the addict's recovery. We talk about a family member's recovery. And what does it mean to be in recovery as a family member? It doesn't mean that I stop caring. It doesn't mean that I put my head in the sand. It means that I really start to get support from other people that are going through something similar to what I'm going through, that I learn as much as I can about what happens to me, and that I start to make boundaries and set limits. And, and you know, one of them may be that my husband or my wife needs to get treatment because they are not getting well. They may be saying that they're getting well, but their behavior is staying the same. They're lying. I'm catching them in lies. But I'm also getting out of being a detective. I'm getting out of being a, an investigator and deceiving myself into thinking, if I can make sure that they don't gamble, that that'll be a foolproof way of them not gambling, for example, or drinking, for example, or watching pornography, for example, any and all of those areas. And so I need help myself. And if I'm getting help myself, there's a, there's a better chance that I can help my husband or my wife join me in getting some help together. And coming up with some a game plan that we really can live with, and over time, my anxiety, hopefully, more than likely, if we're both in recovery, we have a common language, we have a common set of motivations and goals, and things can get better, and they do get better. Yeah, I have three more questions I want to get to, so let's skip, go to the next one that you'll answer. Go ahead. So you, go can ahead. Go, you, can, Louis, you can jump back in afterwards. Um. This is like really an enabling question. I think parents deal with this a Hi, lot. Am I on? Oh, here we go. Look at that. Perfect timing. Thank you. You're on. Thank you for this helpful show and for taking my question. Um, this is in context to watching movies and TV shows. At what point is someone addicted? Um, is it by how much someone actually engaged in the behavior or rather how emotionally consumed they are with it? And how can they be helped? Um, is there any idea of balance and on occasion that it's accessible um, or is complete abstinence the best way? Um, also, can it develop into a more concerning addiction if not addressed? Um, and lastly, does hiding a behavior because others in the immediate environment won't approve of it, even if it's something that you may personally be comfortable with, make it more addictive? Okay, so I, I just wanna take a quick crack at this. I, I love the question. Because again, it's not something that we usually talk about. We don't conceptualize watching movies or Netflix as an addiction. But the escapism route is, the, is similar to other addictive behaviors, right? And I think that's really important. What are, we, what are we gaining from the behavior? Are we using it as an escape? And is it getting to a point where we're escaping to the point that it's impacting our children, it's impacting our parents, it's impacting our family members? Um, I had, just as an example, and I think kids are always a great indicator, they're sort of the canary bird in terms of problems in the, in the, in the family. 
I had a kid write a, a paragraph on about Rosh Hashanah. It was just a regular paragraph, what he felt about Yom Tif. And one of the lines he wrote is that I actually love Yom Tif because for two days, my father can't use his phone. Um, and that was a real impact for this kid. He grew up in an environment where his father may or may not have realized it was a problem, but he saw this every single day. His father was escaping into a different reality. And again, I don't know, if, you know, when I work with teenagers sometimes, you can even notice they talk the way that people talk in movies and TV shows because they're so engrossed in sort of that world. Nobody talks like that in real life. Like that dialogue doesn't actually exist, but, but they sort of become um, enmeshed in that. So I think, I think the indicators are really what are the consequences um, and what happens when I stop? And that's really, really interesting, right? We usually think that withdrawal is associated with a chemical withdrawal, but there's also an emotional withdrawal, right? So if I watch movies as a way of coping with stress, trauma, depression, anxiety, and all of a sudden, I'm, and I'm doing that for 10 years and I'm, it's getting progressively worse, and then all of a sudden I stop, I'm gonna feel incredibly uncomfortable. I'm gonna feel antsy. I'm gonna feel, I'm gonna start feeling emotions that I've never felt before because I've been suppressing them with this escapism behavior. So I think those are really two really important indicators in terms of assessing what an addiction is. And, and I, I even think like, let's, if we even remove the word addiction, right? I don't know if a person is an addict or not, but is it harmful or is it helpful? And I think that's, that's really sort of an important question. Um, in terms of 12-step uh, programs, Lou, I don't know if maybe you might know, I, I don't believe there are any 12-step programs specifically for um, escapism or for, you know, just watching movies, but a lot of the tenants are very, very similar. So any addiction type of material that talk about, you know, being honest with yourself, being comfortable in your own skin, um, learning how to live in the moment, learning how to feel the feeling wash over you and not react impulsively. I think a lot of those are going to be really similar in terms of treatment. Yeah, the only thing I could think of with with watching movies is that it, it requires an electronic device and it, it may be. Um, suitable for some of the new 12-step programs that have to do with uh, electronic devices and, and um, behaviors that, that incorporate some kind of electronic device. I, I think if a person has that propensity, uh, movie watching, and they went to that type of meeting, they would find like-minded people that are working on something within the ballpark, something that's similar. Okay, let's try to stop around these last three questions, okay? I know you see you do all this stuff and then so much happens. Oh, sir, okay. we're good. We, we can keep going, right, Lou? I mean, you're good? <laughs> I don't think I'm going to sleep tonight, so that's... that's <laughs> Lou, 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 where's your do dopamine level? I just want to know. Show me. <laughs> I told you. I've always had a very close relationship with my son. He has been struggling with drugs for the past few years, and I try to do everything I could to make him feel comfortable. I've gotten him a car. I fought with treatment centers to allow him to use his cell phone and come home for family simplest. People have told me that I'm enabling or codependent, but I just want my son to be happy. Should I be stronger boundaries? If yes, how? Classic, classic. Parents so, have to deal with I'm sure, right? The mother is always the mother, right? Not always. Okay. Um, but I, I just want to jump in, Lou, just from my experience, please, please, because I, this is sort of what, what, what I do. I work with the family and I work with, you know, I mean, we're, we're the only kosher treatment center in the tri-state area. We're located here in Jersey. Um, this is a very common issue that I work with. And, and I think Lou is really going to flesh this out. But the term enabler and the term codependent, it, there's this negative connotation to it. 
And the second people feel like we're being judgmental towards them, they shut down and we can't have a conversation. So I think this is really important. Parents aren't actively trying to sabotage their children's recovery. I don't know of a single parent that wants their kid to keep using. They just love their kids. They have a need to make sure that their kids are happy. And, and, and that need may have to do with their own, their own baggage. Maybe it may have to do with their own childhood, right? Where they were the saviors, where they were the helpers, where they needed to make sure that everybody else around them was okay. But I, I, I think it's important not to vilify parents who want to help. They genuinely want to help. I think it's important to, to speak to compassionate professionals who are able to guide parents into really helping their, helping their children long-term. I'm just going to share this openly. If your child has a cell phone in treatment within his first 28 days, he's not going to focus on treatment, right? He's going to be incredibly distracted. And I've seen cases where uh, clients will call somebody on their phone and boom, and before you know it, they AMA'd against medical advice. They left treatment. And now they don't come back. And, and I, I want to put this out there because I know we never mentioned this yet. When we talk about alcoholism and substance abuse, there's a real risk of death. Like this is not just, you know, let's try and work on a, a habit forming behavior. If a client is finally has the courage to get into treatment, not everybody leaves and has the ability to come back in. So I think it's really important to, to understand our own experience, where, where the need to save is coming from, but also to work with compassionate professionals to find sort of the ultimate success, the ultimate help for, for kids. Lou, you wanted to? Yeah, I, I echo what you said, and I think it's, it's on target. I have yet to meet an enabler who is not enabling, at least to some extent, out of love. And I certainly have never met an, a person who is accused of enabling, doing it maliciously because they wanted to hurt somebody. It's just, it's a word that has a, a, a pejorative connotation. And, you know, I was introduced to it when I first got into this field a long time ago. And I have very mixed feelings about that word enabling because it almost implies I'm doing this intentionally, this bad thing for this person I love with intentions that it's just not the case uh, ever. I think that what what can be difficult in the example that, that we just heard is saying no, is learning that kindness can really kill that, um, that, that saying yes and giving and giving and giving without any relationship related to somebody earning something um, without hearing the truth, which is what sometimes parents need to, with the help of professionals and the help of other recovering parents, need to get involved in learning how to do that. It's really a skill that's developed. I don't know that parents are born with this intuitive uh, skill to, to be able to, to sometimes do tough love, but to do it in a way where it's really still love, that it hasn't it hasn't been abandoned into some kind of punitive um, uh, behavior. And it may not be received that way by an adolescent or, or an adult who is in the throes of addiction. So if you're, if you're learning how to do this and you're willing to embark on it or you're already doing it, you know, it's easy to say, but you can't expect a newcomer who is in the beginning of dealing with their addiction to say, you know, I really appreciate you confronting me, or I really appreciate you not buying me a car. It, it usually won't happen that somebody will be that receptive until 
there is some beginning of recovery and there's some investment and there's some accountability. That's, that's why we call this a disease, that it's something that people do not set out to create. An alcoholic doesn't wake up one day and say, okay, I think I'm gonna become an alcoholic. It happens to a person if they have the right ingredients and the right susceptibility and what is so important to hear, particularly for family members, is that there is responsibility and accountability when you're an alcoholic. There is responsibility to get well. Now that may take a little bit of time. It may not be such an immediate reaction for an alcoholic. He may need to suffer some consequences and he also may need to hear from other people that this is not acceptable. What you're doing is not okay. We can't really be part of it any longer but he's responsible and accountable. And then he may start to understand some of the limits that are being set, some of the guidelines and the boundaries that are being set, and he may join. And that's what happens with families that get healthy and get into recovery together. If one faction gets into recovery and the other faction stays unhealthy, there's gonna be problems. Okay, let's jump on this live question. I think it's a little topic we forgot about. Go. Hi. Um, okay, I have a sibling who's been a drug addict for a lot of my teenage years. Um, I lived away from home for a little while, but I'm back and facing reality. So, you know, um, I've been overlooked and just trying to keep everyone stable. Like I'm the listener and the helper and one is living their perfect life, but like it started affecting me a lot more since I came home and I'm not really coping the same way anymore. So things are falling apart for me. Like I'm kind of even jealous of the sibling who is getting the help and attention he needs. But um, besides for my personal question in general, could we address the stigma and the trauma of the sibling of that? Sure. Yeah, I, I think that you're, you're so real. I mean, I, I, I can feel what you're saying. It's very, very challenging. And especially if you feel alone that I'm kind of, I'm the healthy one, but I'm the odd person out. And there's not a lot of support surrounding you. I, you know, I, what I would say generally and, and whatever, you know, applies in your specific case, please, you know, take heed. I, you need a person in that kind of environment needs support and often can't look to the immediate folks in the, in the environment that they're in to provide that support. They need to, as best they can, with whatever resources they can, get that support outside. I, I, I'm, I didn't hear so clearly, but in your case, you came home from a rehab? Um, I lived away from home just to get away. But um, I'm living at home again. Now. Yeah, I can't. I'm sorry. I'm not. I, she's, I'm saying, saying, she's saying that she moved away from home because the matzah was so bad. And now she's yes. back. She, 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 she's not a drug addict. She's good. Yes. Yeah, I got you. You're a family member and you, you removed yourself because it was just so toxic to be in the environment and you came back to the environment. I, I, I would, I mean, it's a quick fix. It sounds like a quick fix, but I, are you getting some support from outside this family that you can continue to work with, um, whether it be professional and, and also recovering people? And can you continue to 
to to rely on them and to speak with them and to have you know ongoing contact with them and is it really healthy for you to be back in the in that in that family environment and do you have any alternatives to that those are just questions i would have and if i can just piggyback off of what lou you just said i think um you know, I don't know who you are, but just hearing the question, like Lou said, it's re it's real. You can you can hear the the emotion over the call. Um, I think you deserve support, and I think this is a really important piece. Family members, whether it's parents, siblings, children, they deserve support, especially someone like you. And and I've seen this with families that I've worked with, where one individual is a problem child and they get all the attention. There are some children who'll start acting out because it's like, hey, I also want some negative attention, and you haven't done that right? You haven't um, made that decision to go down that path. The, sort of the opposite. You've become the listener. You've become the helper, which I think says a little bit about your character and who you are as a person. Um, you deserve as much support as you can get. Um, and, and, and I'll just say this as a professional, if someone like you were to call, the least we can do is be there on the other end, right? I mean, you're living in that moment. You're the one going through the fire. Um, there are people out there that that's what we do. We're here to just to answer the call when you do make that phone call. Um, and, and I will share this. I don't know if this is true for you, but I have worked with adults who were in similar situations and those listening skills made them a better person, right? That ability to be attuned to other people, they were better adults if they got the support that they needed. And when they don't get the support, they sort of become parentified it's their job to make sure that everybody else is happy. They burn out very quickly. And now they're the adult who has issues. But if, if you have the ability to get the support that you need with the character that you've been exhibiting, um, you can really be a really big support to people as you get older, mm. if that makes sense. Beautiful. Okay, we'll just go with one last question. I have so many here. I, sorry, I have to pick this one, but I'm just gonna pick this one. Um, and then we'll go to closing. Um, my child went into rehab a few weeks ago. Friends and family members have begun asking about him or her. What do I say to them? How can a family deal with the shame or embarrassment of having someone in recovery? I know I have family members that will not be accepting. I don't need any more stress on my head. What do you advise? So if I can just do this really quickly, um, I've actually gotten this call from parents with the rehab that we work with. Um, I will never tell a parent what to do. I don't have the audacity to think I know how to live your life better than you. I've never walked a day in your shoes. I don't know what it's like for you to be in your situation. And even if people have similar situations, no situation is exactly the same. Everything in life is incredibly subjective. I think when those questions are asked, it's important to ask them to a professional, but to begin processing them, right? What does it mean for me to have a child like this? What does it mean for me um, to, to have to talk to my neighbors about where my child is or why he's not at a family simple. What, what, what's my part that keeps coming up in this? And with some of the parents that I've worked with, there's a level of, of mourning um, that's associated because we all have dreams for our children when they're younger. We all want our kids to be a certain way. And when that doesn't turn out, there's a loss that parents experience. Um, so I, I think the question is a beautiful question. I'm not sort of answering it. Do you take your kid home? Do you not? I think, you know, some of the work is really, what are the underlying pieces? What is it like for the parent? And can the parent get sort of the support that they need to help them work through that process of having that kid in treatment? Excellent. Yeah, I would just add that sometimes in the beginning, 
it's it's more effective and more comforting and and more supportive to to trust and to and it may be counterintuitive but but to learn to trust somebody who's been through what you're going through to be to be able to take a risk with a parent who's been in your shoes as opposed to somebody that you may know very well or maybe a relative of yours that's interested in finding out what's going on that it's just not the right time to share the exact nature of what's going on and that that can be a building block to talk to somebody who's actually been in that position and has negotiated and worked through that you know through a 12-step program through a family program can be very very helpful as a first step Okay, everybody, it's been an amazing time. We're going to go to closing, stay on. I have a bunch of things to say. Um, I feel really bad. I feel like we really, like, really touched. There's so much more to, 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 to we definitely. Lou, I know you schedule next week, but uh, clear it up. <laughs> First, Good, next week. Thank, I want to thank Lou Abrams and Nate Nagelblatt, Nagelblatt for coming on tonight and giving tremendous physic, advice, advice, guidance. I, I know everything is general, but it was very eye opening. I got a tremendous amount of texts. And um, we'll get to that in a minute. Nate, if you could just give a little bit of contact information if people are texting me. And Lou, I don't know if you want to. If you want, they can send me the email. Before, whatever you guys want, Nate, go first. Sure. I know how I mean, to talk to you on what you do. Just give a little yeah. short. Um, are we? Okay. So, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm fine sharing my cell phone. I mean, that, that's really the best way to get through to me. Text WhatsApp uh, 347-414-4228. Um, for the email, I mean, it's a little bit long. Nagelblad is a long name. I apologize. So you'll 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 text Usher or just email Usher, and he'll send out an email. Um, but we're I mean this is what we're here for. This is what we do. We're here to answer the call when someone finally has the courage, whether it's a family member, whether it's the individual themselves, and they're ready to make that change. They're ready to admit publicly that things aren't okay and that they want to get better. Um, uh, I'm just going to say this in closing. I, I love. Ready for closing. Ready. Oh, we're not up to closing. So. No. Uh, We'll, we'll come back to that in a second, but just, okay. just for contact information and for the, the support. I know we talked a lot about family support. Um, recovery at the Crossroads, like I said before, we're, we are located in Jersey, and we are opening a, a family support group that's free uh, for family members, uh, and that's going to be starting in November, so if anybody's interested, please feel free to reach out, and that's pretty much it. Okay, if somebody wants to reach out to, uh, to Recovery at Crossroads for a consultation, what should they do? Uh, reach out to me, um, nate at racnj.com. Uh, N-A-T-E at R-A-C, recovery at crossroad, N-J.com, and that'll be the free uh, And What's your cell phone number again? 347-414-4228. Best is text. Uh, yeah, if I don't pick up, just leave a message. Okay, Lua, I don't know if you want to share anything. Not, not closing, just contact over this. Yeah, yeah, I can no, get the emails and I can forward it to you, whatever you want. You can, you can certainly give out my email. Um, give it out. My, my, my voicemail says I'm not taking on any new patients, but I'll help you find somebody. So I will say that to the folks uh, far and wide. If you, if you need help getting to the right person, I'll do my best to, to make that happen. Okay. Amazing. Okay. So again, anybody who's here for the first time every Sunday night, 10 p.m., we do a share. Next week is going to be amazing. Next week we have Rabbi Yossi Zakatinsky, who I think is Nate's cousin. Believe it or not. Cousin. We, do much, we do it in order. <laughs> uh, from the five towns, he's really, um, I, I was, I was having to have been in Bayswater for Shabbos and I spoke to some of his chevra and he's like, next level, they're going to be discussing who we are, what are we doing here, and the need and revel- relevance of deeper sides of the Torah in our lives. And, um, just join. It's relevant to everybody. Anybody who has a pulse should be there. Uh, it should be powerful and amazing. 
Everything tonight's recorded will be Mitchem on uh, MenachemBernfeld.com, his website. Anybody has any questions, please email us at coachmenachem at gmail.com. Tonight's share, share number 76, and it should be, uh, and it's recorded. If anybody wants to call tomorrow, will be on our, on our phone number at 848-777-GROW, 848-777-GROW. And again, I want to thank all our advertising sponsors, the Lakewood School, Rabbi Yanif Chazak, um, and a special thank to Chayla Kaufman and Shmuel from JCM for promoting us and all the digital platforms. Let's go to closing. Nate, you go first. All right. Ooh. So just, Ooh, just in right. closing, yeah, I, I'll, I'll be brief, but um, the fact that there are over 300 people on this call right now after 12 um, is why I do this. Um, people, people sort of ask me, like, the addiction field is really hard because... Um, like we said before, like people people don't always survive. Um, there is a level of overdose. People do pass away. And there's an incredibly high rate of relapse. But the thing that gives me as a professional courage is the fact that there are so many people that are interested in getting better, whether it's for themselves, whether it's for their family members. Um, I was going to say this earlier, but I, you know, I think we'll really wrap with this. I love working with addicts. Addicts are... Um, some of the most beautiful people that I know. Um, they're the very few, I, I call them the top 1% of society. They're the people who get to say, this isn't working for me. It's incredibly maladaptive. It's hurting the people around me. And I'm willing to walk into a group. Or I'm willing to walk into a therapy office every single day or every other, whatever it is, how many times a week. And I'm willing to say, I don't know how to do this. I need help. And how many people do we know that are non-addicts who are able to do that, who have that bravery, who can say, hey, this isn't working for me and I just need help, I need support. And I'm willing to be honest, I'm willing to be responsible for my, my side of the street. Um, so the fact that we have so many people on here tonight, people were asking questions openly, um, it, it's, it's incredibly courageous and um, I appreciate it. I personally appreciate it. Um, again, it, it, it sort of helps deal with some of the harder parts of this field. So thank you everybody for being on and um, I appreciate it. Thank you, Nate. Lou, before you go, two things. Number one, what do you say to so many people coming on a Sunday night to spend, to get better, to get the physical, that's A. And B, you think if Reverend AJ Twisk is alive, you think he would have enough in such a program? And then go to closing. Yeah, he, <laughs> Rabbi Torsky would have loved this. He would have loved to have participated in it. And you know what? I, I think he's, he's here. He started a lot of this and he's continuing it and he's looking down and he's smiling and it's, he has a great smile. So I'm very happy. Thank you guys for uh, allowing me to participate. Um, when I was thinking about closing, I, I thought about the, the end of a, we did cycles of lectures at the rehab, uh, all the rehabs that I've operated. And the one that I was in the lecture schedule to do every four weeks or so was called the spirituality lecture because spirituality for recovering people, whether they're Jewish or not Jewish and whether they're from or they're not from, spirituality is often a very perplexing, very lot of ambivalence with spirituality and religion and what does it all mean in terms of recovery. And the 12 steps have some, <laughs> 12 steps talk about Hashem directly in a bunch of steps. And people were, they'd scratch their head and they'd be uncomfortable. And so at the end of the spirituality lecture, after we really hashed out what is spirituality, what does it mean? And we went through a whole bunch of information and sharing on the part of the, it was a very interactional lecture. I would ask the people in the audience, there were usually 70 or so patients that were at different points of time in their recovery at the rehab. I would say, why are you here? 
Why are you here? Meaning, why did you live? Why you could have died through this addiction? These were all people in early, early recovery from drugs, alcohol, and all sorts of other ailments, but specifically drugs and alcohol. People that drove drunk repeatedly, that did all sorts of dangerous stuff, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. And so the question to them was, why are you here? Why did you not die? What is there for you to live for? And people would stop in their tracks and they would they would think about this. And I, I ask it to the people on the on the screen tonight, family members alike, because there's reasons why family members are on the screen tonight. And what do you have to live for, to go forward with? And so you may have very individual, very individual answers to this, very um, specific to yourselves and your families and your place in the world. But one thing that we all have in common and that every, to a, to a person, everybody in this rehab, whenever it was that I was giving this lecture would say is I need to stay sober. I need to stay sober as a family member, which means I need to keep growing and connect with people and get support and start to give support as well. I need to pass it on, which is absolutely the 12th step of every single 12 step program is about passing it on. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps and goes on to speak about passing it on. And so I would encourage people that sat in and that contributed. You contributed if you said nothing tonight. You contributed by being here and you have the ability to pass some of this information on to loved ones, to your community, to Rebeam, to, to whoever you think may be able to get something. And when you pass stuff like this on, it gets reinforced inside you. You gain chizik personally and you give chizik. And this is what we're about. And so thank you, Usher. Nate, it was really a pleasure. Thanks everybody for, for hanging in there until 10 after 12. <laughs> and uh, it's Monday morning, by the way. All right, let's start our next session. <laughs> Thank you, Lou. Thank you, you guys are amazing. You're Sadiqim. And uh, Mitchum will see everybody next week, next Sunday night, October 24th. Same time, same place. Rabbi Yossi Zakatinsky. Take care. Good night. Hi, it's Coach Menachem here. If you enjoyed, please consider supporting us with a small monthly, monthly donation to help sustain the future episodes. And it will be greatly appreciated. Thank you in advance.